Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Hey, mate, welcome back to the show. Pleasure to be here. Today, we're going to talk uh, about four companies and one ETF, and we're going to do it a bit more rapid fire than usual. Normally, when we go live, we talk for 60 minutes, and there's a bit of banter, and we have a good day of it. Um, Today, this is a, a shorter episode, and we're going to help our listeners by providing three ideas for their watch list um, for further research. And I think the companies that we're going to mention speak a lot to kind of who we are as investors. So but I think maybe the best way to go about it is maybe I go, you go. And then if there's a little bit of question time there, we can, we can have a chat. But before we get to that, I think a really good thing to talk about is maybe the holiday promo that Seven Investing have got going on until the 7th of January. Do you just want to fill us in on that one, mate? Yeah, mate. So, uh, you know, at Seven Investing, we're looking for people who are long-term investors focused on being long-term investors. So we're giving this uh, a holiday discount um, if, if for annual membership. So our annual membership is $3.99 a year. And that you, you lock in that price effectively as long as you remain a member. Uh, what we're doing for the, the holiday season as, as, a, as, a, as a promo is giving away a taking off $100 if you use the code HOLIDAY. H-O-L-I-D-A-Y in capital, uh, I think it's in capital, uh, then you get $100 off, so your price becomes $299, but it's $299 in perpetuity as long as you remain a member. So it's you know, $100 off every year, um, as long as, and, or it could be more than $100 if, if, if the price goes up. So, so that's the promo. If you're interested, you know, go to sevenvesting.com forward slash subscribe, and, and you should be able to uh, get it there. I think, I think a lot of our listeners would who aren't members are probably considering it already. So if, if you are uh, on the fence, you'd be mad not to lock in $100 off into perpetuity. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, we haven't done anything like this. When I saw it on Twitter, I was thinking to myself, damn, I wish we did that. So um, maybe I'll have to pick your brain on this in the new year and see how it went. But yeah, that's the holiday code. You can use that at seveninvesting.com forward slash subscribe. Okay, so let's let's chat about some companies. The first company that I want to talk about is um, a, I might start with a big one because oh, we'll save the little one for last, which is uh, no surprise to a lot of people. Square uh, slash Block Inc. trades on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker code SQ. So it recently changed its name from Square to Block, um, and I think this is a maybe a, an, an afterthought or maybe it's something um, from. Um, a bit of a, a move towards this Web3 slash blockchain, I guess, fascination of the CEO, uh, Jack Dorsey, who is now convinced that um, Web3 blockchain technologies, public ledgers are the way of the future. And so the company is positioning itself for that future. But at the moment, the real bread and butter of Square is having a point of sale device. You've probably seen it at a local restaurant or cafe where you go up and you tap it. It kind of looks like if you've got AirPods, like we've, well, I've got in today, that case, it's like a little round white square and you tap your card or you tap your phone and you pay for your goods. Um, that's the traditional business model of Square. It started with um, Jack trying to help out a friend. I believe he was a glass blower um, who had a craft store who was trying to accept payments but couldn't and missed out on a big deal because he could only accept cash. So he went about designing this thing which plugged into your iPhone and accepted payments on the go. Square makes a clip of the ticket as money comes through the point of sale. 
The company then expanded through a hackathon into the Cash App. And the Cash App is uh, basically peer-to-peer payments. It's also now basically your on-the-go bank account and you can access it from your phone. The company shot to prominence in uh, COVID because people were getting their stimulus checks deposited straight into the Cash App, which then enabled them to access money really fast and then start sharing money around, pay for things. Um, The company primarily makes money on that side of the business. I think this is an important point on money coming into the ecosystem or money going out. It it tries to keep that money locked into the ecosystem once it's inside. The final thing that I'll add on Square is that uh, it's currently, and we've talked about this a few times on the show before, you and I, mate, it's currently in the process of taking over Afterpay, which is probably, you know, you could say a firm and Afterpay are the two world's leading buy now, pay later companies enabling consumers to split their bill. Uh, in Afterpay's case, that's split it over four payments. And I think this is a great acquisition for the business because it effectively provides a raw growth engine and customer acquisition from Afterpay with a very sticky uh, ecosystem with the cash app from Square slash Block. And of course, I think Jack is just trying to complete the loop here. He's trying to bring together payments all in one. Um, I mean, that might be a regulatory hurdle in five years from now, but for now, it's a really interesting company. Maybe I'll just finally mention one of the risks. I guess the risks here are just kind of execution. This is a very busy space in terms of, you know, PayPal's basically got its super app in Venmo and the PayPal app. Apple Pay's making a move into this space, although it's slightly nuanced in terms of how it does that. Um, We've got, you know, Chinese businesses moving into the space as well. So there's a lot of competition. Um, It's just a really interesting business. Uh, expected to be volatile. That's Square slash Block trades on the New York Stock Exchange under Square. I don't own shares, but I probably will in the near future. I actually do own shares of Square. And I love this business. Um, ah. yeah, the stock is actually down about forty percent. Um, it is. I, I, as, I, as, I, as I told people, this is a hack. I maintain a spreadsheet of the, of the shares I own, how many I own what their current market cap is and how much they're down from their 52 week highs. <laughs> but I don't have my cost basis on it because the cost basis that you have is immaterial, right? What really matters is going forward. So yeah, I love this business and you described it uh, fantastic. Actually, one of the things that has happened over time is Square has, you know, Square was typically the SMB. Uh, yeah. So Square is like, the best way to think of it is like a, a bit like Tyro, right? Uh, a bit like Tyro here in Australia. But it has moved up chain, upstream, right? It has got bigger merchants that it's serving. Mm-hmm. And one of the advantages that we talked about when we talked about their acquisition of uh, Afterpay is that Afterpay actually adds to their enterprise-grade customer base, uh, right? When you think of customer, it's not the user, not the consumer, but the you know the enterprise-grade retailers and things like that that'll come in. Uh, so I love this business. I think that's a good the, point. And that's actually hidden in the Square um, 10K. If, you, if you're not paying attention, you might not realize that they actually do bespoke stuff as well. So it's not just off the shelf. Here's you know 1.1%, 1.9% um, of the processing fee, but uh, uh, sorry, of the, 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 the purchase price of the goods, but they actually do serve those larger customers. And you can see it in that cohort, it's slowly creeping up. They're getting bigger and bigger mm-hmm. in terms of their customer base. So it's really interesting. Um, good to know you own it. I wish I bought it during COVID. Uh, well, you know, you can buy it now. It's off 40% yeah. <laughs> from its highs. So, yeah, I, I was looking at it. Uh, I haven't actually recently bought any Square shares, but it was on my watch list. It got very close to being a buy, but I had other things that I wanted to buy. So, oh, so uh, much. And, I, and I had a decent position in Square. Love it. That's great. great. Mate. Is it my, Wonderful. Is, is it my turn? Is it? Uh, it is your turn. Yes. I'm, I'm interested to hear about this business, actually. Okay. So, I'm going to. I'm going to go for a small business called Global E. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, this is New York's, uh, this is a NASDAQ listed business. GLBE is the code. This is a very interesting business. This is an Israeli business uh, headquartered in Israel. Um, and uh, it's still founder run. The three founders are still involved with the business. What it does, it's a, it's a very simple idea. What it does is it says, well, if you're a brand, let's say you're, you're Nike, as an example, and you want to sell your goods in every part, you know, different parts of the world. One of the challenges you have is either you can set shop with, you can set a Nike shop inside say Amazon or you know eBay and have a shop there and then they can manage the logistics for you, but you kind of lose control of your consumers, right? So you don't have a direct to consumer relationship. If you want to have a direct consumer relationship, you could set up, you know, you can set up the nike.com.au, you can say, set up one for Switzerland, one for like, you know, Iran, one for China, and you can have separate websites and then try to manage all of that. So on the one hand, if you give the responsibility to someone like big, like big intermediary, then you lose the relationship. On the other hand, if you don't do that, then mm-hmm. you land up not um, having direct relationships and direct relationships with consumers. And this is a theme that I want to talk about is, uh, is very important, especially with this change in how you know privacy works, how tracking works, and how the data is sort of about consumers and individuals is now getting very siloed into the internet giants, right? So data in that sense is being controlled effectively by, uh, by Facebook and, um, and Google. But if you want to control the data and experience of your consumers, you want to have the direct consumer relationship. So what this company does is it effectively has a platform and, and some software that plugs into your one website, but it gives the experience of local usage to consumers. So effectively, if I want to shop, say, you know, assuming using Nike, what, and I'm say coming from India, it would look like the site is in India. It'll have the experience of being in India. It will probably have local language support. It'll take, it'll take payments in the local currency, have local shipping. It'll look like local shipping, local return, all of that experience. And that experience is then completely managed uh, by, by globally. But Nike as a company still has basically direct consumer relationship, right? So basically they're providing the software and the backend uh, in terms of shipping to deal with uh, distributing or, you know, things people want across the globe without really going to a, a big intermediary like an Amazon or an eBay or things like that. Can I ask a question? So, How does this compare to say something like Shopify? It's very similar to actually Shopify's. Uh, it's very similar to Shopify's um, a market product, mm. with the except that this is it's, it's more bespoke. So the Shopify's market product is focused on you know smaller merchants, mm. and and trying to help them ship globally. Actually, anyone if you set up your own shop, you can ship globally. But you know the things like you very quickly you'll figure out that if you know if I want to buy a coffee mug uh, from someone. Um, it will turn out that well, I'd pay probably more in shipping and this and that, uh, you know, and the final pricing is going to look actually very different for the price of the mug because you're using uh, a site, right? And it, it just, I think the best way to think about it is that this is a bespoke solution for large enterprises with want to have the direct to consumer relationship. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, so the interesting thing is that Shopify is actually a shareholder in this company. Shopify is actually a major shareholder in this company. And Shopify, so Shopify is competing with this company and at the same time is also working with this company. And the way I think about it is that the the bigger merchants on Shopify, for example, Netflix and a few others, they are using 
Globally's platform, it plugs into Shopify. And the smaller merchants don't need the solution. So they're just on Shopify's you know, global uh, markets platform. So that's, that's the relationship with Shopify, but they also have a relationship with uh, DHL. Uh, DHL is a shareholder in this company and DHL is basically the shipping arm uh, or one of the major shipping arms for uh, shipping products around the globe for this company. Um, so I think, and, and the way they make money is basically make a, a cut on the gross merchandise volume um, of the products being sold. And this sort of large brands like, you know, the Louis Vuitton group, for example, uh, you know, so, you know, you did sell things like tag you and stuff like that. Um, it's an interesting company re growing really quickly, still very small. It's a sub $10 billion market cap uh, company. Uh, I think an interesting idea worth mm. putting on your watch list. I do want to I've got one more follow-up question. This is a totally new company to me. Does it have any, um, like in terms of its customers, does it have any concentration risk, like anything meaningful there? Like a, anyone making up a big slice of that? Revenue? Yeah, so I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but there, there is concentration risk. Like, I mean, the top 10 probably accounts for maybe like a good 50% or so of the total revenues that they make. Yeah, um, yeah so there's concentration risk with this company. It's really small. It's profitable, actually. So it's, it's a profitable on, a, on an income basis, an operating basis, and so on. Um, margins are still low, but expanding. The gross margins are low, but expanding. So it's, it's an interesting company to watch. Hmm. And it's an interesting space given sort of the broader theme of just, you know, control, you know, know your customers, have direct relationships with them. And it's expensive to acquire customers again and again through various channels, right? So um, if you have a customer, you, you might as well try to retain them and engage with them. For sure. So that's um, Global E, uh, Global hyphen E, GLBE on the NASDAQ. I think that's a really interesting name. I love those. I love it when you come on the show and you talk about like sub 10, sub $20 billion companies, because those are the really interesting ideas, right? Um, we, we Potential multi-baggers. Yes, that's it. We talk a lot about Apple and Tesla and Google and all these companies, but it's good to Good to bring in um, smaller businesses. Okay, speaking of smaller businesses, full, maybe I'll start with the risk on this one. This company um, is a very small company, even by Australian standards. It's about $100 million in market cap. So that just let that um, sink in for a moment. The company is, um, and oh, sorry, what that means is if, you're, if you want to buy shares in this company, um, just keep in mind that liquidity is a real risk and the company will be volatile. So just, you know, all of those full disclaimers up front. The company is laser bond and it trades on the ASX under the ticket code LBL. Laserbond is a surface engineering company. So what does that mean? It basically repairs the surface of machinery and equipment to a standard that is better than new. And it does this with, I think it's multiple times less uh, like carbon. And um, so it's more environmentally friendly, but it also repairs it sometimes um, 10 or 20 times stronger than the original component. So imagine, you know, we're not getting, you know, these microphones or our iPhones fixed. This is a, a big piece of equipment, such as, you know, the hydraulic on um, a conveyor belt or on a, you know, one of those big excavators. And Laser Bond will bring that piece of equipment in, repair it, repair it to a standard that is better than uh, new, and it's cheaper, it's uh, easier for the, for the customer who might require this piece of equipment to be back to them soon. And it does this through a few different divisions. It's got the products division, which is basically making the products. Then it's got the servicing division, which is basically repairing them and, and doing all those types of things. So traditional engineering, like if you drive past any industrial state in your area, you would see warehouses that have engineering 
in there. The difference is, and this is where this third segment of the business comes in and what's most interesting to me, is they have this technology division that basically focuses on licensing. And for the better part of a decade, maybe longer now, the company has had its own R&D department within its manufacturing. So it has scientists and it has its own research leads and they are actively pursuing the most modern technologies in surface engineering. It seems like one of those tiny, tiny niche little things that really it's not worth the time of some of the other big players. So LaserBond does it. And their technology is so good that they believe that they are the world leaders in many aspects of surface engineering. I'll give you one example, which is chromium. So you might see chrome and chromium on um, industrial uh, sites. You might see them on hydraulics, those types of things. Chromium is actually um, very toxic and it can be hazardous to people that are around it. And it can also be hazardous and it is hazardous to the environment. And so they've come up with cladding technology that basically can produce the same product without using any chromium. And this is a substantial market. And I think going off the top of my head, when they estimated the TAM, it could be as much as a billion dollars, but let's bring it back. Maybe even if it's worth, you know, tens of millions of dollars per year, um, what LaserBond is seeking to do is take its know-how and its technology and license that um, technology. So it's licensing it. And I thought at first this, okay, this is a, maybe this is a bit, you know, does this actually happen? Is it just something that's a pie in the sky type thing? Well, in 2021, they've actually signed some of these licensing deals with North America, uh, North American clients. And there seems to be some interest out of Europe as well. And that's a much better model for them to license that technology because then they don't have to put, you know, boots on the ground in North America or in Europe. They can effectively just become the leader from here in Australia. And they've already signed some of these deals. These are multi-year deals. The business itself is profitable. It's um, off the top of my head, over the last five years, it's compounded its revenue at about 23% per year, but it's done that while paying out 25 to 30% of its profits as dividends and also reinvesting back into that R&D function. Uh, and that chromium is actually just, that chromium technology is actually just one of the cladding technologies that they're pursuing. The other thing is that I'll mention is they are expanding into brownfield assets. So what I mean by that is traditionally they were, um, you know, uh, Sydney-based. Uh, they had these kind of uh, assets all over, um, kind of the eastern seaboard, the lower eastern seaboard, uh, South Australia. They had you know a presence there. But what they've done more recently is they've identified well, we should be closer to our mining clients. We should be in Queensland. We should be in Victoria. We should be in Western Australia. And what they've done is they've started to make acquisitions. So they would buy ready-made. This is why I say brownfield manufacturing facilities or warehouses with people there, with um, engineers on site, ready to go with capacity too, to put through more volume um, from the products and services division. So the business is profitable, pays a dividend. It's got this kind of, um, the variant perception, I guess, in this instance is that technology division. It's illiquid, it's small, um, highly aligned management team um, with lots of pedigree and a track record. So I like LaserBond. It's on the ASX under ticker code LBL and full disclosure, I own shares. Oh, I think I've lost you there, mate. No, no, I was muted. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm going to actually have to look into this one. This sounds very interesting to me, very intriguing. Yeah, it's an industrial company. So who would have thought that that was exciting? But um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a, like I said, small company, but it's compounding consistently and it's got a bright future. So a really interesting small business. Yeah, some, sometimes the under the radar sort of ones are, are very interesting to me. Like, you know, this, you know, this is sort of under the radar 
you know, not, not in a sexy area, as they say, you know, it's not sexy, but sometimes yeah. non-sexy is, is awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad my pitch aroused your interest, mate, there. Um, you've got a, the second one for us, um, which is another US company, which I'm really interested to hear. I think I've seen this one talked about, but I, I don't know much about it. So you have to fill us in. Yeah, so this is another boring sort of idea. Um, you know, probably nice. It's probably boring's more good. boring than uh, it's. It's probably you know less interesting in that sense compared to Laserbone. Um, so this is a company called Task Us. It's an IT outsourcing company. Um, it's founder run. The two founders actually. It's very rare in the U.S. for founders to own significant chunks of the business because you know businesses are typically. Um, you know, venture funded and they, they get diluted, you know, so if you think uh, mm. founders own less than 10%, that's actually okay. 5% is actually thought of as good. In this case, the founders actually own more than 20% of the business uh, mm. because Blackstone, private equity group, had actually taken a majority stake in this business, you know, three, four years ago. Uh, they funded it. And this is a highly, pro this is a profitable class leading business in terms of its margins. So operating margin close to 24, 25% in IT outsourcing, it's actually very, very good but the good thing is it has that kind of margin and it's growing at you know i think last quarter was like 60 percent growth or something like that um in revenues so what is special about this company um they serve basically the tech industry so they're an it outsourcer of i guess preference of people like you know the coinbase and you know netflix and facebook mm. these guys use um, Tascas. Majority of their, their employees are based out of Philippines. So you can, well, it's a US listed company. You can actually think of this as an international company because you know their largest employee base is uh, Philippines followed by uh, India. Employees of this company love this company. It has very high glass door ratings, really, really high glass doors. Again, class leading in that. Um, <laughs> and um, and I think these guys can continue growing. So the multiple areas in which they work, you know, things like, you know, they provide, so an example would be, uh, think about uh, social media and uh, content moderation. You need human intervention and you need some software and human combination to work. So that they would do, you know, whether it's fake news or, you know, is inciting violence and things like that. They would help with that. So that's how they work with for example, Facebook, uh, if you think about machine learning applications, then labeling of data is a big deal, right? So they work with um, uh, folks working on self-driving where you are looking at probably image data and trying to label them. And that mm -hmm. label data is then fed back to you know machine learning algorithms. But it might seem like, okay, this is manual, but you know, even labeling data isn't actually an you know, semi-automated process. You have human intervention, but you also need technology to actually label. And labeling data is probably like sort of the most important part because if you can't label the data properly, then you can't train mm. your models properly. Um, so they do that. Um, and they, of course, provide, you know, you know, contact center style, like, you know, customer support and things like that. So even things like know your customers, like if you're, if you're Coinbase and people are setting up accounts on Coinbase, uh, which is basically a crypto, um, uh, crypto exchange, or if you're Robinhood and you're setting up an account on Robinhood, which is basically a brokerage, then you need someone to actually help you with the verification of accounts and things like that. So those are the sort of things, sounds mundane, but you know, mundane stuff is required. I like this for a couple of reasons. I think the valuation is really good. Right now, it's relatively cheap, in my opinion. I do own stock. I've actually bought it uh, a few times recently as well. Um, and um, the other thing I like about it is that it's founder-run. 
they love the they love their employees. They provide great benefits to employees. This is important in this type of industry. Mm, uh, it, it, it has an inflation hedge, which is the other thing I like, which is some might sound odd, but most of these companies have um, a CPI sort of clause in their contracts, right? And this is a great time to sort of go to say someone like Facebook and say, well, I need to charge you more. And Facebook is probably going to say yes, because he's going to say, well, I've been paying more to my employees. But then these, these folks are actually getting the job done in places like India and Philippines and Mexico, where potentially there's a lot of workers who need mm. work and they probably don't need that, you know, the, the 10% pay hike uh, to get them to come to work because there's a lot of people looking for work. So, so there's that sort of thing that, that you know, so you get, a, I think, the, you know, the inflation is working for you instead of against you in this case. And I just like the fact that it's, it's small and growing quickly and serving the industry, which is also growing. So digitization is a big trend uh, today. And, and the digital in industry is going to probably outgrow, you know, or outpace other industries. So therefore, these, these companies have a tailwind. So I like it for a number of reasons. Sometimes, again, boring is really yeah, useful. I point to people to um, a company called EPAM Systems, another IT outsourcing company. Another, what happens with IT outsourcing companies, you start somewhere. And then you, over time, you sort of you know, add on other services, like, you know, you could add engineering services, for example. Um, and EPAM system recently got added to the S&P 500. But if you've looked at this company over the last 10 years, this is compounded at something like 40%. Um, so you can have, you know, 40% per annum return. It's fabulous. Uh, who would have thought that an IT outsourcing company can do that? So I think, you know, you can get, again, really solid market beating returns from someone like uh, Task. I, mean, I do own shares. Uh, I like this company lots. Um, mm. And sometimes boring is useful. I might add just a little bit of personal experience here. I think your that um, kind of thesis, that that belief that once you use it, you use a lot more of it. I think that's so, it's, it's very true because what tends to happen is the hardest part of establishing an outsourcing relationship is actually establishing a good relationship. So getting in a situation where it works for you, if you're a business looking to scale, like for example, we want to outsource things, right? Just dat basically data labeling, data input, that sort of stuff. But then you start with that and you, you establish that relationship and you go from there. You then go, okay, we want more data. We want engineering. We want, you know, all different types of things outsourced. Um, but the hardest part is managing that relationship. So if, if you can find a trusted partner for that, it, it becomes just a no brainer to invest more in that relationship and to, to spin that up. And I think that's really, really interesting. Uh, it's a really interesting company. So that's task. It's on the uh, NASDAQ under the ticket code TASK. Um, really, really like it. So uh, task us, I wasn't sure when you sent it through if it was task us, but task us is the name. Um, one final thing. I'll just add a quick, I'll just quit add a, a, you know, so, so you know, I, I tend to talk up companies I like. Uh, so one yeah, of the companies is yeah. <laughs> risk. Risk could be, A, um, it's got Blackstone as a majority owner, right? And Blackstone okay. probably is going to sell. Um, Blackstone probably has like 11 bagger or 12 bagger on their investment in this company. Um, so at some point they have to, uh, and they should potentially be reducing their stake. I don't think that's a bad thing, which is going to add volatility. The other thing I'll point out is, uh, you know, typically the either US companies I look at, they would have half a million dollars, uh, sorry, half a billion dollars uh, plus 
in, you know, so $500 million is sort of like the minimum sort of, I think I expect these companies to have in, in cash balance. This company has probably less than $100 million of cash balance. Um, and because the money that they raised during the IPO was effectively used to fund, uh, pay back what they call a phantom share. So people had these phantom shares, the company, you know, employees and founders and other owners had a phantom shares that basically needed to be paid. So it, didn't get, it doesn't add liquidity to, to the company. The shares are phantom, so they disappear once they're paid off. So there's no dilution, but there was no cash raised really. Um, so it's a profitable company, but you know these things have upside leverage and downside leverage as well. It can, you know, because there's a fixed cost base. So if things go bad, you know, they could have to raise. They might have to raise money in a in a bad situation, which is stupidly not. So that's the risk, which is probably one of the reasons um, that this stock sort of has sold off. But you know, again, they're profitable, which is an important point to make. Yeah, and that's that's interesting. I think the the private equity involvement, um, you can take that as as good or bad too. I guess the other thing is like. Um, they IPO it and then they want to get out. Um, so you just got to know who you're buying from at any one time, particularly with smaller companies like this. Um, we see this all over the world. It's not specific to this sector or this market. So, okay, great company, great company. I like it. And it's one for my watch list. Um, I might just end with an ETF for those investors that do prefer that kind of more passive um, and the kind of, or the, even the semi-active style of investing where you build that core of your portfolio with ETFs and then add some uh, growing companies around the outside. Um, I'm just going to throw one out there, which is one that I don't own yet, but I'm guessing I will probably very soon in 2022 is the BetaShares Diversified High Growth ETF. Trades on the ASX under the ticker code DZZF. So this ETF, um, just for those of you that don't know, if it says diversified in the name, what that means is it doesn't necessarily invest in shares. It doesn't invest in bonds. It actually invests in other ETFs. So this ETF in particular invests the majority of the money that's inside the ETF into other shares ETFs. So think about it as a basket of baskets. That's how I describe it. And this is kind of like one of those kind of out of the box. Um, I, I, I use the analogy of if you get HelloFresh or you get some sort of meal delivery service, what you might do is you might um, say, choose the, the recipes, but it all comes in the box. That's basically an ETF. You know, as individual stock investors, we're picking the ingredients and we're putting it together that box ourselves, but HelloFresh or Marley Spoon or whichever one you go with, the ETF would be the equivalent of that. Now, this is like you get a box and inside that box, there are multiple boxes for the week. It kind of takes care of your week and that's what the diversified ETF does. So it's an ETF. Um, investing the majority of its money into um, shares. And then there's a small allocation to bonds in there. But what's important to know is it actually also has an ethical overlay. So it only invests in other ETFs that have ethical overlays. So if that's something that's of interest to you, the DZZF ETF is kind of for, for higher growth, higher risk investors. It's actually one of those that um, is really interesting and it offers the kind of out of the box, ready-made, um, start building your core portfolio from this. So really interesting ETF. There are other diversified ETFs such as those from Vanguard, but those do not offer the ethical overlay. So that's just one for your watch list in 2022. And mate, I think that's about it for today. We've got, we've been through four stocks. I went through Laser Bond and Square. You went through Task Us and Global E. We just had a bit of a snippet there on the end for the BetaShares Diversified High Growth ETF ASX DZZF. We're going to come back and we're going to do a couple more of these shorter episodes in the near future. But just as a reminder for anyone who is playing along at home and is thinking, I want to become a better investor in 2022, 
you can head to seven investing forward slash subscribe, use the code holiday. We're not sure if that's all caps. We should get confirmation on this. You can find us on Twitter at 7A Mahanthi and at Owen Rask. Um, and we will put all the links in the show notes for you to take advantage of that offer. Um, in the meantime, find us on Twitter, give us some recommendations of, uh, of your own and tell us what you want us to talk about. Mate, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for taking some time to join me on the show today. Thank you.